Hello, I'm Deb Han. Welcome to Ambassadors, the podcast. I firmly believe we're all here in service of each other in some way, shape or form. For some, it's to teach, others to help, for some to make, and for others to sell what you make. I could go on, but bottom line, we're all part of a rich tapestry of life and we each contribute to our own patch of the weave. Some do this with more conviction than others. Now, if like me, you're fascinated and inspired by the works of people, then you're so in the right place. Ambassadors is a podcast rich in conversations and messages dedicated to bring faith into focus. And by faith, no, we're not going to church, unless you're referring to the my body is a temple kind. Because for me, faith is about finding and then following answers in the heart. See what I did there? Finding answers in the heart. That's faith. So listen to the stories and experiences of those who have found and then followed their heartfelt answers. Allow their stories to inspire your own version of what's possible. Because if they can do it, so can you. Let their story show you a way forward. Enjoy. Can you imagine being just eight years old and know what it is that you want to do when you grow up, whatever that means these days. Well, today's guest is a little like that. We're going to meet an Olympian. We're going to meet a swimming Olympian. We're meeting Lisa Forrest at just eight years of age. She kind of knew there was something special for her and the pool and the country and so on. So today, this episode, Honestly, if it sounds like two friends just having a chat, it's kind of how it is. But the cool thing is, there's an awesome book, Glide, that uh, that Lisa's written. And we tried to talk about that. I promise, I really did try to put Glide in focus. And we did, here and there. Anyway, hope you enjoy the conversation. But more importantly, I hope you enjoy the book, Glide. I'll drop the link for purchase in the show notes. Enjoy. Lisa, how are you doing? Oh, great, Deb. How are you? I'm really good. Good to good to chat. Good to chat with you about all things glide. Well, uh, you were an early reader. Well, not only an early reader. My goodness, Deb. I met you when I first began the whole, you know, glide story. You were one of the first people I met when I you know, joined the coaching. Uh, I signed up for my coaching course, and we did that coaching mastery weekend uh-huh. <laughs> at our time and we just kind of clicked straight away so you've been part of this glide story for quite a while oh thank you do you know that weekend was um because you know when i go in when i when i went into those weekends i never knew who was going to be there i used to go in really quite blind and um and i'll never forget <laughs> when i met you on that on that friday night and it was like oh my god that's Lisa Forrest. I know who Lisa Forrest is. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> it really took me by surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with delight. And, and, and we just like you said, great connection ever since. It's been wonderful. 
yeah. Well, I was freaking out that night, you know, myself. <laughs> In fact, later, um, remember David Ma, who runs Celebrity Speakers here, I, I sort of, uh, you know, talked to him, sent him a note that I've been doing the coaching course, you know, I can speak from this angle, you know, when it comes to speaking engagements. He's like, what? Lisa, tell me you ran the course. You didn't take part in the course. Like, yeah, no, I took part. I needed, some, I needed some updated motivation techniques, which, as you know, that was sort of why I, you know, signed up because the one that I'd been using, which was when the going gets stuff the top, get going, it had really lost its luster and I'd been using it as a kind of whipping um, or a whip for years. So I was just turning up to like, can I save myself? Can I save my marriage? You know, I didn't know that I would have to be coaching people even as a, you know, as part of the course. And that was fascinating to then, to then actually be sitting with, because, you know, we coach other coaches and then we start to coach pro bono people. And that was the beginning. You know, I came to this whole glide process looking for trouble with my thinking or taking time out to find what was wrong with my thinking. And that had been a problem since I was swimming for Australia. And then, of course, you start coaching and you realise that, Actually, quite a lot of us have a trouble with our thinking. And I, wouldn't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm sure. But I mean, I talked about the fact that I had this voice, this Miss Never Enough, who just would drive me, you know, into black holes of doubt. And so many of us do. Mm, absolutely. I was just going to say, so, you know, welcome to the human race. It's not, it's not, yeah. you know, <laughs> we all have that Mrs. Never Enough or, you know, the monkey chatter or whatever. We've, we've all got a name for it, right? So, and I love, yeah. I love how you weave you weave this part of your your personality or your person in and out of this book. She's she's such a she's such a diva really, isn't she? This this book. It's never enough. And the scarcity sisters, yeah, there's a few of them in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not to make another stupid mistake, you know, and now everyone will think you've gone completely mad. There's a few of them in there, but it's never enough is the is the lead singer. <laughs> but but I think that also as you say, that capacity to be human. I, I mean, I've said now a few times when it, you know, in, while I've been chatting to people about Glide, um, that I, when you're eight and you decide you want to go to the Olympic Games and you've seen your heroes go, you know, 15 or 16, which is, I was an eight-year-old watching Shane Gould and Bev Whitfield in 72. And so you start to pay attention, right? I had an awareness practice from the time I was eight years old. Mm. So I was pretty aware of stuff, aware of the voice, aware of a whole lot of things. Um, but I thought that the obstacles to being better were actually false as opposed to, as you say, just being human. And that's what um, the nicest thing I think that I learned through, first of all, the coaching and then through the practice of mindfulness meditation and, you know, the whole um, MBSR program that, oh, right, it's human to make mistakes. You know, Miss Perfectionist, she's one of the scarcity sisters. Like, <laughs> but I think that that was a really, what a um, relief that is. And, and that's one of the tenets, isn't it, of, of self-compassion. Well, talking to yourself like a friend, understanding that you as a human being are not perfect, you will make mistakes, but not taking it personally or not kind of identifying the mistake. Um, or the emotion, uh, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about anxiety and stuff, but not identifying, just realising that, oh, we make mistakes, oh, we have these moments when we're panicked, where these thoughts will come and go, we can let them go if they're not going to help us. And that was just what a revelation. Yeah, absolutely. You mean we don't have to be perfect all the time? I know. What a revelation oh, that is. My thank God. goodness. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I want to come back to you because the whole reason we're talking today, I mean, apart from we, we could talk every day anyway, 
and we would if we could, let's be honest. Um, hours. <laughs> <laughs> but you have, you've written this awesome book, Glide, and it is a brilliant book. And I, I think one of the things, pretty much what you're talking about right now, or sort of just that little chat then was about the, the subline of this taking the panic out of modern living. Um, and then the DY Ladies Guide to Life. I, I, I love those ladies. I love, love, love those ladies. They are just, are they not, are they, are they goddesses, do you think? No, well, I think they probably were in their day, yeah. But I think the, um, the reason, and again, that was one of the other things that I discovered, of course, that for years, yes, I had this, oh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I love that saying when I was, that motto, when I learned it when I was a kid. You know, it made this shy little girl kind of tough and, um, and like a tigress kind of thing. So I really enjoyed it. But what um, stopping and, you know, doing the coaching course and then the mindfulness helped me do was um, realise that actually I knew another way to manage um, a high-stress moment. And the ladies had shown me, and I knew from the very first day I landed at the, you know, down at the club. So DY Beach is in between Collaroy and um, Curl Curl, if you like, it's on the Northern Beaches mm -hmm. um, of Sydney. And my brother wanted a fiberglass surfboard, and he was, you know, all of six turning seven. And Dad, being an old Bondi lifesaver, said you have to be able to swim 400 meters. So yeah. I, um, he got his name in the paper after his first race, and I'm the older sister, so I. You know, I think that was my competitive edge stirred. <laughs> and I went down the next week, but I was also a really cheery kid and um, a shy kid. And I always cried. I didn't like leaving dad's side, anything, even going to kids' birthday parties, I'd cry, you know. Wow. So the moment that I cried on the blocks, because um, that 25 meter line looked an awful long way away for my head out of the water overarm freestyle, you know, I couldn't even do, you know, what little kids now know is sort of, you know, big, big arms with a breathing every three strokes. Anyway, so the moment I cried, the ladies just had a policy that an older girl jumped in the water right in front of me in the lane and she gave me a big grin and said, come on, sweetheart, you can do this. And so the gun went off and I threw myself in and they got me, she walked backwards, yeah, down the lane as I swam, trying to catch up to her, of course, and she got me to that 25 metre line. Yeah. And, and there is the beauty, isn't it? There was no judgment, which is perfectly normal. Little girls cry, they get nervous. You know, take the first fear out of the way by putting someone in the water so you're not going to drown. Yeah. Um, and then we, then we deal with the, um, the sort of the sense of self, if you like, you know, and you just get in there and show you that those tears are underestimating you. Yeah. And so to actually go, oh, wow, I've been telling that story for years, just a kind of a quaint story about how we started in the amateur days. And then to realise as I was doing the coaching course and learning about leadership that, Oh, I had been given a beautiful lesson in leadership when I was eight years old. I was just learning that I could offer it to myself, that sort of kindness, that non-judgment, because this is never enough, it's full of judgment. Um, so to become the DY, a DY lady for myself, or to step into my role as the DY lady, that was, yeah. that's what I was invited to do, really. Yeah, I think, you know, you used the word kindness before, and <clears throat> honestly, that's, that's what they were. And, you, you know, it's interesting, you said um, little girls cry, so little boys cry. Um, That's right, I should say that. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. So, but whether we're little or we're, we're fully grown, we, we, we cry. Yeah, yeah, I cry still. I shouldn't be saying little. I don't know. I don't need much encouragement sometimes either. <laughs> but it's, oh, yeah. the, the bottom line is I, the thing that I, I really loved about that DY um, experience with, the, with those ladies is exactly what you said about that whole lack of judgment. They, 
they got alongside and they gave you permission to be who, who you are or who you were. And, and like you say, they, they, they led from kindness, they came from kindness and they, they helped you go through that lens. That was it. And then, then this spark of awesomeness was born in your brain around, well, if I can do that distance, I'm going to be an Olympic swimmer. Maybe there might have been a... Slight, a slight bit of time lap between there and, and the Olympic swimmer, but it was, yeah. it was pretty quick. Really. Not much. Yeah. It wasn't much. I wanted to, I couldn't wait to come down again the next week. And yeah. then we, we joined late in the season, so the championship season had already begun. So you had to swim three club races, just from a championship race. And the first race I could swim was the under eight, 25 metres of butterfly. I could really do freestyle. But I had this book called Swimming the Shane Gouldway that mum gave me yeah. for Christmas, or was in my Santa bag. And I, I asked mum later why she'd given me that because I wasn't, I didn't have an interest in swimming at that point. You know, this was say February and I was given the book for Christmas. But I covered, she said every little girl back in 1972 loved Shane Gould. She was 15, she was about to go to the Olympic Games. She was, you know, in line to win five individual gold medals. Like the woman was a super fish or she was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I covered that book in plastic and there were lots of photos, of black and white photos of how she, of the different strokes. Her father had written it. And so I taught myself to do butterfly from that book that week before the swimming, before the championship race. And I came second in the race, but only by a whisker to a girl who, you know, her sisters were in D.Y. Lady. She'd been a member since she was five. And so suddenly that was, I was like, I'd done something special that day. And then that, that winter, those girls went to, um, uh, to Munich. I read about them in the newspaper and I was like, oh, I'm going to have a go at that. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's really interesting, the fact that you taught yourself to swim from a book. Right. And, and, and what better, you know, master can you learn from? Let's be honest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> appropriate, isn't it? Later. <laughs> totally amazing. But that's not the only thing you've taught yourself. I know we've just been talking about the coaching and the mindfulness and the like, but, and you go into this in, in your book as well, is that, you know, you took the, the, the leap from the pool into other areas of life where you really challenged yourself with goals that you went to New York, for example, and that was to yeah, you know, that was that was acting, was it not, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, to yeah. study acting. I, yeah. So there was yeah. lots of different things that you really challenged yourself, and there's been a lot of self-learning, self-taught, self-applying studying. Can you yeah. talk through a little bit of some some of that? Like what motivated all the the mastering of various trades, if you yeah. will? You know, I don't know, really. I mean, as I said, like, I was kind of a shy kid, but I think that um, suddenly my world was opened up. And, and look, if you have imagined yourself at eight to be at the Olympic Games, and then you get there, now, you know, it might not have, the race might not have turned out the way that, you know, you wanted it to. But at the same time, when I retired, I think that I didn't see why, well, if I'd imagined myself doing that, why couldn't I do these other things? And I would really, as a little girl, I'd, I mean, I remember having a, an argument with a, a friend at school when I was in like year five. I wasn't a fan of school. I mean, I'm, I'm bright enough, I could do it, but I wanted to leave. I, didn't, I used to say, I said to her, I'm not going, I'm not going year 12, I'm going to year 10, I'm going to be a secretary and I'm going to work in London because I like fashion. So that was really the sum of my ambition. And then, and then suddenly I'm captain of an Olympic team and journalists are saying, what are you going to do after swimming? I'm going to be a secretary. And there's nothing wrong with being a secretary, but it's not lofty, is it? It's not sort of, it's, it was kind of, oh. 
And so maybe there's say, still time. You could still be a secretary, right? <laughs> well, I think. Oh God, I feel sorry for anyone that would have me as a secretary. I'm so badly <laughs> bad at organising myself, let alone anyone else. But but that was it. So suddenly I was being asked, "What are you going to do?" And that is the nature of the amateur days. There was no way that we could make turn sport into a career unless you wanted to be a coach and my mother was never going to let me be a coach let me tell you she <laughs> intended that her girls would go to high finish high school because she didn't and go to university so um so right so that was that was in there um so i first of all i started someone told me i'd be good at pr and so i'd answer journal and say oh i might do pr and they say oh you'd be good at that so I'm like, okay. and then i was always writing i was always writing aerograms home and i loved manly and so i had these journalists that were male they never sort of said well you're a woman so you can't be a sports journalist they just said you should be a sports journalist so that's where i started um but also i had all these other interests and i think that was the frustration in those early years um like I, ch I chucked all my medals and everything out in a council cleanup um yeah. in my in those very early years of retirement because i wanted to i wanted to move on you know everyone said you go to the olympics when you're in year 11 and you get on with life right and so Are i couldn't missing, though? have any of those medals come back to you well see my father has found them and brought oh. them back in and hid them in the garage <laughs> so i knew that and also <laughs> even I had a box of letters and things, and my mother did the same. Like when I was writing Boy Quat, she produced them. I don't know what they were in a cupboard somewhere at home. So I was ruthless, so ruthless that that's, I was like, that's it, it's over, there's no point, you know, I'm moving on. So I think, uh, and then I got frustrated that people didn't have the same imagination as me. Well, I could see myself doing all these other things. So, and New York itself, well, yes, I, I got to that point where I think. I had done some acting classes at school and uh, I mean, uh, sorry, after work um, when I was working on the midday show and stuff. And I think in the end, instinctively, it was great in terms of kind of uh, being able to turn toward emotion because I've never known how to manage my emotions. No one talked about emotions when you swam. So I just kind of believed in, well, I thought they were weakness, you know, and you can get into that, but essentially, you know, you just got to tough it out. So they helped me, the acting classes helped me to understand that in fact all experiences are valuable because if you're going to play a character it's you know to, the wider your personal experience the more you can bring to a character i mean not to say you can't imagine hitler but it's kind of nice to know you know that or be able to embrace all those sides of yourself like maybe your drivenness or whatever it is that i just used hitler as an example but you know what i mean yeah. um and then of course there was that other the other great moment in um new york when i when I found my Matisse swimming pool and that helped me get back to the water. So, look, I just think it's imagination, Deb. You know, yeah. like I imagined myself doing other things. And I mean, I had a dad also who said, don't be a gunner. He just used to say, gonna do this. People would say, gonna do this, gonna do that, never do anything. So, so if you said you were gonna do something, you'd better do it. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a combination of things, really. Yeah. But I, I love, you know, the, the thing that really comes through as, as I was reading live when you sort of talk about the different applications of your life is like everything, it might've been, everything was kind of different, but it wasn't, it was, there was always this blend, everything kind of like there's a tapestry that weaves everything. Does that make sense? You know, mm -hmm. I think it's all really the writing in the book or just in my life. In no, terms no, of no, no, no. Even like the way you talk about it in the book. But it's 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 all like it all it all can interconnects really really well. Like um, I, I think even like you know the tenacity the like, the tenacity in your swimming from you know that I don't even know that it's necessarily a competitive edge and drive, 
even though there's, there is that there. But I think that's what set you up in, set you up in New York, for example. You, you were not going to come back without, you know, like, you know, you followed through with everything. And like you said, with your dad, with the whole gonna this and gonna that. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Do it. You're not a gonna, right? You mm-hmm. always followed through. Mm-hmm. I loved, I loved the, um, you know, on the midday show, your experience there and how, in fact, I love the way you write about that when you, you felt kind of naive and whatever else. But then it was like, no, not really. Like, here I am, I'm going to learn and, you know, do the sports stuff as well. You just learn from everything. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and I, I mean, I often think that being an amateur, starting in an amateur sport, well, uh, we did it for the love, you know, because mm. you weren't doing it for anything else. Um, there was nothing to be gained from it and except in the end, while yes, there's medals and stuff, there is internal, um, you know, the intrinsic value was the most important thing. And I think that that set me up in many ways. I didn't ever, sadly, and I wish that I had it because I might've made a million dollars, but I never set out to make a million dollars doing something or, you know, to do that. I more set out to, have life experiences and I don't know why that was. I don't know. Some people say it's because I was a Piscean. I don't know. You're at the end of your, the zodiac sign. Who knows? Um, but I did, I, I did, I think that there was something about that I, I didn't ever, I had been so lucky in that anything I've done, everything I've done is really been just fascinated to see if I could do it. And yeah. that, and that in itself, um, it gives you, I mean, while I was frustrated with myself at the end of Inheritance, which is the book that kind of, you know, where I went down into very deep holes of doubt and decided I needed to do something about my thinking. Um, it didn't take much for me to actually be able to see, because I knew it was there. That in fact, I'm really lucky. Um, and I think that I'm quite, I have that sense of satisfaction with what I've achieved. Oh, there's a learning actually. There's the classic thing that I learned from, um, one of the things I learned from writing the book, actually from a mindfulness really, mm. is that there's a, um, there's a, a mindfulness teacher, um, um, Martine Batchelor, and she talks about, with, in terms of the second foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha found that we, we, um, you know, the Vedan, the, we have feeling tones, we move towards what's pleasant and we move away from what's unpleasant. So, she, so there's pleasant, if she says, say pleasant is 10 and unpleasant is minus 10, no, neutral is about zero. We pay no attention to neutral. And I think um, that, that for me, what I began to understand was that I felt, um, she said that's what she did, that contentment is neutral. Satisfaction is a neutral feeling. And so, yeah, it doesn't have the jazz of pursuing something that might give us a reward, nor the, ooh, the feeling of avoiding. It's just neutral. So understanding that actually it's okay to rest in that neutral place and that sense of satisfaction is deep, but it's still. I think that's, um, the, that's the beauty of, of what um, mindfulness practice gave me, really, in the end, that um, I have all the, had all these experiences. I'd done them for love because they really interested me, and that was the richness of it, and to just be able to rest in that, that was the skill, I think, that I had to learn. Perfect. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I want to go back to the Olympics just for a moment because, mm-hmm. you know, we're in Olympic year now, and... It looks like the postponed Olympic year, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you know, we're meant to have the Olympics in Tokyo in a few months' time because of the whole COVIDness at the moment. That's not going to happen. It looks like it might happen next year, which is a 
first time in history as far as yeah. uh, Olympics have not happened previously as a result of world wars, but they've never yeah. not, they've never been delayed. delayed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So given your Olympic experiences and disappointments of, you know, boycotts and, and, and so on, I mean, what would you, what would you say from your own experience and your own awareness of Olympics happening and not happening, those agendas being taken out of, out of your control, what would you say to the Olympians of today? Or have you been saying to the Olympians of today? Because yeah, yeah. Well, um, really just when I've been asked about it, I sort of said, I mean, they, they don't need my advice. I've got plenty of advisors these days, but the better decision was made was the best thing. And I think that the Australians came in early saying, look, we can't, we can't mount a team at the moment. Um, for us, it was back then, it was the, the not knowing was really, really difficult. So we kept training, you know, the Olympic Federation eventually made a decision on May the 23rd and then the government still challenged that. So it was still going on. There was another meeting with the government into June. So it was that not knowing that made things very difficult, whereas at least knowing it's, you know, it's postponed. Um, it didn't drag on any further than it needed to. Um, and I think that was that's the beauty. So then you can go, okay, um, for some people, it would have been just so devastating. Uh, well, no, I should say for everybody, if you've you know, trained to go to the Olympics. Um, but there would be people that were more prepared, if you like, than others. Um, so uh, the thing is that you can then have the space to you know, grieve or um, feel disappointed, you know, take time out, you know, take a deep breath and then regather yourself and, and head for 2021. So I think any time that a decision, uh, you know, one of the big challenges we're talking about um, with COVID-19 is the uncertainty. Um, so anytime you can make something a bit more certain, then that's, that's very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> While understanding, of course, that we just don't know anyway, because still even giving that certainty, we don't know what's going to happen with this over the next year anyway. Yeah, well, exactly. We make the assumptions it's going to be, yeah. next will be fine and maybe it will. Yeah. And it will. <laughs> Let's just speak it into being, shall we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. So let's come back to. I love what you were saying a moment ago about that. Um, you know, between the um, the extreme and the, mm -hmm. that lovely, you know, place of contentment. But because it, it's interesting, we were talking about this before we, we, we were starting to um, record that piece around. Um, taking the panic out of modern day living. And uh, it was David that said, do you want to? Yes, yes. That's a panic well, that was a question put to me by a journalist, yeah. yeah. yeah and I think that one of the advantages, because it is a confronting thing, like suddenly in this time of COVID-19, is this person saying, oh, you can take the panic out of modern living. And it's a, you know, a very, very intense time. Um, and all I can say is, yes, I knew through all of the experiences that I had had, um, whether it was in swimming or whether it was interviewing somebody or writing a book, there had been moments when I had been um, incredibly, um, uh, or I'd wound myself up like in the ready room before the Olympic final, which you can read about in the book. And I knew it was my thinking that was winding me up. And that of course then led to me slipping at the start of that race. So, and then even before the, um, the Commonwealth Games in 82, I knew it was my thinking and luckily Rocky had changed my thinking before those games and had helped me to steady myself and then I could manage. Yeah. So likewise, when I'm interviewing somebody I care about, I get really nervous, you know, I want them to like me. So what I was looking for was, um, you know, in between these incredible, there's moments of panic under stress and there were moments when I'd been totally calm and swam at my best under high stress. So how to make 
it permanent. That's what I wanted to know. It was clearly a, it was clearly um, possible, but it was more like a fluke if I managed it. So I wanted to turn that sort of state that seemed like a fluke into more of a trait, or at least understand um, how I could do it more consistently. And really, I mean, whether it comes to training or coaching as we do, or mindfulness practice, it is training the brain to be in that calm, but, um, but, um, uh, calm but ready state if you like no matter what it happens to be and flow itself if you talk about that really special state of when everything comes together and time seems to fall away and you are at your absolute best that is when concentration meets challenge when, when sorry skill meets challenge usually at a high level so the capacity for us to be in flow that's what i was interested in. I, i'd had the experience of the flow state I didn't know how it happened, <laughs> but I wanted to find out how to happen, how it happened more often. And really what it comes down to is training the brain. Yeah, perfect. It's interesting because, you know, um, as, as a spectator, just thinking about an Olympic moment, um, Nadia, come and eat when she's separate. Se come on, come and eat, oh. come and eat you. Yeah, I'm not, I think she's come and eat you. But yeah, I, I'm not an expert in her pronunciation, but... Thank Fabulous. you. Yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, she celebrated for the perfect 10 in, in that, that floor routine, right? Um, but in her mind, as you well know, it's, it was probably a minus 10. Like she's, she's fixated on all the things that she, that, she, that she didn't do and that she missed and so on. And so I didn't see that. I just saw the 10 and Man, celebrated and, and, and so on, right? And, and even, even today, that routine still haunts her in so many ways, right? So um, I only saw something quite recently about how she spoke again, but it's still, it sits in her mind. And one of the things um, that I was fascinated in within Glide was the story of the slip. You mentioned the slip in the pool when you were yeah. preparing for the backstroke, I think. So um, can you tell us, just tell us a little bit about that, but more importantly, how this slip has been a gift. Yeah. It just keeps on giving. Who would have thought? Uh, but yes, at the moment, it wasn't a gift at all. <laughs> I'm sitting in the ready room in front of three East Germans and suddenly the voice, the thought comes into my head, loud as, you know, clear as a bell. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And I just was kind of devastated, betrayed. I couldn't understand why it was happening. Back then, there was no sports psychology except, you know, positive thinking is better than negative. So what did it mean about me that I was having this negative thought at this moment? So I fought the thought in my mind. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. And I got myself into a terrible mess. And at a certain point, I, I, I put my head in my hands and just said, why are you doing this to yourself now? You're exactly where you want to be. This is where you wanted to be since you were eight years old. And um, to, into my mind flashed... Uh, a bit like a black and white, like a black and white television, you know, watching Shane Gould, you know, as I was watching the news, she walked out on deck, the pool deck, uh, and she had, you know, uh, well, I knew it was yellow just because I'd seen the yellow rose. It was, you know, light coloured robe, Australian emblem, way to the crowd. She left with both her arms. Yeah. And in that the moment, in that hour, yeah. it was such a relief. Um, yeah. and I was, so I sat up and I said to myself, okay, to the, or to the voice, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. We're going to pretend. We're going to walk out there and we are going to pretend like we know. You're going to get to the 50 metre end where the Australians are in. You're going to lift your arms and wave to the boys because they're like my big brothers, some of them the team. Then you're going to get down halfway down or three quarters of the way down the pool. And there was uh, 
my coach's best friend, John Devitt, he was commentating with Gary Wilkinson, you know, waved to him. Yeah. And at some point, it's going to kick in. You're going to remember how to swim a 200 backstroke. You wouldn't be in the final at the Olympic Games if you didn't. And so I did that. And I was kind of okay until I got into the water. And there in my, I was lane three, third fastest qualifier. And there were these two white patches right under the water level where I was about to be. Um, put my feet. And of course, that reminded me of a conversation that I'd had earlier in the day with Martinelli, who'd won a gold medal in the 4 by 100 medley relay. And he was also a sprint backstroker. And he offered me this can of resin, a sticky stuff. So if I sprayed it on my feet, I'd stick to the wall because there'd been a lot of problems with the wall. The backstrokers had been slipping all through the meet. This was the last night. But in my journal, I'd been writing about confidence. Who had it? How I needed more of it if I was going to win a medal? And it seemed to me that if I said to Mark, yes, I needed your sticky stuff, then I was admitting I wasn't confident and I wasn't prepared to do that. But suddenly I'm looking at these white patches and those thoughts started going, oh my goodness, where are you going to put your feet now? Is it slippery where the white patches are? Oh, all stuff. And of course, I put my feet up and then slipped. Mm -hmm. um, so then 20 years later, I'm, I've worked in the media and everything and I was asked to write a book as, as the, sorry. We, oh. as, as a result of the slip, what happens next? As a result of the slip, you mean in the water? Yeah. Oh, so I've slipped, right? So not even with enough. So the gun went off. I just had, I'd started to slip before the gun went off and he didn't see it. So he could have called a false start back then. So I slipped down the wall, not even with enough force to, um, to hit, get to the bottom of the pool. So just flailing midwater, I come up and just, you know, there's all sorts of rules, not rules, but guidelines about the way you swim a 200 backstroke. Like don't go out too fast is the main one. Yeah. And just, you know, settle yourself into your race, build, you know, get comfortable and then you start to build. But I just thought, oh, I've made such a terrible mistake. I'd let the best women in the world, you know, given them two body lengths start. I didn't, I didn't deserve to just get comfortable. I just had to go after them, you know. Um, and then I, so I got to fourth at the third turn and then I finished seventh. Um, which my sister would always say, yeah, but what about the girl who finished eight? She couldn't even meet the girl who slipped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't funny at the time, but I could see the no. there. <laughs> Anyway, sorry to make you read anyway. that line then, but you know, <laughs> just, so then after the swim. So I, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, I thought that it was pretty bad. And then I called my mum. And uh, they got up, mum and dad got up at three in the morning to hear Norman May commentate and uh, call the race. And mum said to me, first thing she said, what happened? Norman May said you weren't concentrating, that you were waving to everybody in the crowd before the race. Oh and my so God. my marvellous, you know, fake it till you make it um, sort of plan had been misconstrued. And all I could think was he's told my father, you know, who got up all those mornings at four and to take me training that his daughter went all the way to the Olympic Games and didn't concentrate. I was just devastated, as you can imagine. Um, and then, Deb, I mean, we've spoken about the Coaching Mastery Weekend. Like, I've, I've wrote a book called Making the Most of It in the Middle, which, you know, we can talk about. But but I'm you showed the Amy Cuddy TED Talk, Fake It Till We Make It, in that Coaching Mastery Weekend. The first thing. And so I've gone to this thing. I'm freaking out. What am I doing here? Oh, my God. I hope I can save my marriage, you know. And suddenly she's talking about faking it till you make it and lifting your arms up as a way of reducing um, testosterone. Uh, um, reducing cortisol and elevating testosterone. And I'm watching it thinking, oh my God, you did you have it right all those years ago? <laughs> and isn't that was amazing to me that the you were ahead of your time, ladies? You were 
Yeah. Isn't that incredible? I couldn't believe it. So I was like, thanks, Amy Cuddy. And really, I was thinking, what have I done by joining up this coaching to this coaching course? Am I going mad? And that, then I went, no, you seem to be in the right place. <laughs> That's what we'll learn here. And you're okay. Your instincts have led you to the right place. Oh, but as you say, I did write a book um, called Making the Most of It um, 20 years later. And um, by then I'd been to acting school. I'd taken some writing classes and, you know, looking for good plot points. And suddenly, you know, I was asked to write a book. We're leading into the Sydney 2000 Games. The swimming has become professional. And so I thought, well, what about if you made a girl similar with similar experiences to me, a silver medal, a gold medal at her first Commonwealth Games rather than silver like I got, um, a world record holder going into the Olympic Games. What if she slips? You know, when she's got this opportunity to set herself up for life. And so I let her go on a slide that I didn't go on because I'd come back and I'd caught up. I was a good girl. i finished all my schoolwork and did finished in the top 10% in the HSC. Um, and so I wrote this book and I would get letters in the mail from teenage girls saying, whenever I felt bad, I dipped into your book. Wow. And so suddenly I had a way to go and tell my story. I've not done any public speaking for all of that time. And um, I had this way of telling the story. You know, we... we put a frame around, we tell a story about our experiences. And that was the worst experience of my life. And 20 years later, if you'd asked me my most secret desire when I was that, when I was 16, it would be to write a book. And yet I'd used the worst moment of my life, made a plot point in this book and turned it into the best. So, you know, all these years later, I call it the slip, slip that keeps on giving because I'll talk about it and someone will come up to me at the end of that talk and say, Thanks, Lise. I've just, I've given up on something I really like. I can see it's just a set work. I'm going to have another go. Yeah. And I thought the gold medal story was the one that, you know, would be the winning, would be the most important story to tell or the best. Isn't that Incredible. the truth though? But that, is that not life? It doesn't matter who you talk to, but what it is they've achieved, whether it's the, the gold medal, the Academy Award, you know, the, the whatever the recognition piece that they're, that they're celebrating, right? it's that's yes that winning moment is it's a you know leaves that beautiful sweet taste in their mouth but the story is what happened on the way you know mm. is that the, the story the, the story that makes it so fantastic or whatever will be that slip moment along the way it will be that stumble that i didn't that wasn't in the script that was <laughs> you know, that's no, the, it's the last thing you want to happen and yet yeah. you can stay open to the possibilities, then, then it's amazing. I mean, and, you know, I was lucky in the sense that, um, look, it's slipping in a swimming race, you know, so I came back to school and all sorts of things that happened, you know, parents divorced and um, one father who committed suicide and, you know, there was all sorts of things going on. So it puts life, it put, you know, life puts you in perspective. But it just means, though, this, I think, I mean, I write about it in, in Glide, you know, there's a beautiful book called The Body Keeps the Score. I make the vessel Vandercock. And it's very much about the experiences that we have. They sit in the body. They're kept in the body and they're held there. Um, and even while writing Glide, I was, I was writing about the fact that, yes, I had this big story. When I went out and talked to teenagers after I um, wrote uh, Making the Most of It, there was this big overarching story that was great. You know, yes, um, I turned the worst moment into the best. And, you know, you can frame it, your experiences in any way you like. But in the middle, um, as I was writing Glide, I realised that I was telling the story, I, that from the moment that I had slipped, or when I slipped, I, I came up to that surface and my thoughts were, I did not deserve to get comfortable in that race. I didn't deserve to settle in. 
And yet the only way that I was actually going to make up, really properly make up for what I'd done was to settle in. But I thought because I'd made a mistake, I didn't deserve to be comfortable. Wow. And that was a revelation. As I saw those words on the page, I realized what I'd been telling myself for all of those years. Yeah. And that was in itself, like sometimes, I don't know if you've had that experience, Deb, when you actually, when you connect with the core belief mm-hmm. and you actually realize what it is, like you almost, it's, I get it now, like goosebumps and kind of almost a shaking inside as you're, as you let go of that and you turn toward it and you just like let yourself feel, oh, yeah, that sadness of that moment, which was, of course, we all deserve to be comfortable, even if we make mistakes. Um, and I, we were renovating our house at the time. And I was having all sorts of problems as we got closer and closer. My husband was trying to build me a house I could be comfortable in. And I was resisting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is that what that's all about? Just like, let it go. Amazing yeah. what the body keeps. See, and, and that highlights that, that coaching principle around um, <clears throat> that piece around pain pain takes on um you know many forms right it'll be the the same experience plays over and over and over it'll have different names happens in different places but that core emotion that core energy it's unchanged and that's exactly what you're talking about but have you rewritten the story now do you think you've rewritten the story of you deserve to be comfortable do you think well i think so i think so definitely i think just even well I think awareness is even you're suddenly aware of it and you go yeah and understanding what self-compassion is that that, you know compassion is not a weakness that capacity to turn towards that and to let yourself feel it is um you know it's not what we're taught in sport we're taught and yet at the same I, I was interested in that that in terms of learning about emotion is that actually in a race or under pressure or even in training we are taught to be with the experience so that we keep our stroke long and we keep you know, we keep us breath steady, all those things, and we can do exactly the same thing with an emotion. Whereas yeah. most of the time, we just don't want to feel it. I just want to, that. I don't. I want to forget that moment. And yet, of course, trying to forget it or try to avoid it, it just acts out, as you say, in other ways. And then you wonder why you're out of control. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, it's because there's this little thing inside, this little person that needs to go. Oh, it's okay. It was just a mistake okay. on that day. Not the best place to make the mistake. But you're just a little girl trying to deal with big things. Yeah. <laughs> it so you just need to bring that beautiful dy lady into your world yeah. get yeah. alongside jump into the pool the pain pool right. and yeah. <laughs> you know lead you through there's another yeah. side there's another side yeah That's it. and i say that with full um uh, understanding the fact that again it was a swimming race and yeah. um and there are people who are listening to this podcast who podcast who have much greater trauma than that um, so I'm not, um, I don't mean to devalue at all the, the fact that there are people who have gone through incredibly difficult things who are sort of have survived it and yeah. who are not ready to actually be able to turn towards some of the things that would unlock them and would help. But again, it's, it, um, um, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, early on, I remember, I think it's in um, Full Catastrophe Living, he talks about the fact that, you know, the body is an infinitely healing organism. Yeah. So to be able to trust that it will happen at the right time is also really important. Yeah. And I, I would add, you know, I, um, you know, absolutely acknowledging that there are, um, you know, great greater levels of trauma people are coming, you know, diagnoses and loss and, and, and griefs and so on. Um, yeah. However, it may have been a slip in a race. However, 
it, the, the point is, is that lessons and dare I say joyful lessons that are anchored in kindness and opportunity so often show up in the tiny, tiniest things. And we can be, we can be so dismissive. <laughs> oh, it was just a yes. slip. It was just a this, it was just that. No, no, yes. it wasn't. It was a real moment that really happened. And, yes. um, and it was, in truth, it's actually been, that was the little lock that you needed to get the key in, so to speak, and that's yeah. been really quite transformative for you. So, yeah, um, that's right. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I was captain of the team. I believed I was letting the country down and letting my family down. So mm. there were big things that came with that. There's, there's no doubt. Yeah. So, um, thank you, Lisa. So we, we could chat for another hour. So seriously, we so yeah. could. Because there's so much we haven't spoken about. We haven't spoken about Rocky. We haven't. Another <laughs> <laughs> time. I can read the book. It's a good story. <laughs> but honestly, it is. It's. A, it's. A, I really. I really enjoy. It. And you know, it's such an easy book to read too. Glide. It just. You literally glide through the read, so to speak. Um, I, I remember when I when I first read it. I was when I first started reading. I was also reading um, Michelle Obama's Becoming at the same time. And do you remember what I said to you? Do you remember? No. Ah, well, so Michelle write, writes with such a, a, a beautiful metaphor. She's just got this beautiful mm. metaphoric cadence through through her through her writing. And there was a moment that she spoke about. Um, so she and I'm trying to remember what it was. It was that's what she was describing writing um making toast and it, it sounds like such a simple thing right but it was about she was making toast and it was the first time out of the white house and they're in their own home uh -huh. this white house she's making her first meal where she is completely alone in the house and as she's writing this she started to talk about a memory that was just being pulled like a pebble from her pocket that had slipply, you know, glid in and out of, of her of her person. And I was just like, oh, and it was such a beautiful link into like the way she spoke about that moment, about how it was a memory that sort of slipped in and out as it as it was gliding through her, you know, her mainstream of life. And it was a simple, humble moment. And it really it connected me very quickly back to your reading and the way you take so many um, simple, normal, daily, real life moments and weave them into a really strong lesson of learning for life. Because there's nothing wrong no. with you. Nothing wrong with your thinking. Nothing. Welcome to the Oh, <laughs> thank you. And I was fortunate. I have a beautiful editor, Ali Laveau, and she also edited Boycott. So she knew um, she knew some of the stories very well. So she beautiful. She was really beautiful in helping me to to do the weaving. Um, yeah. Whereas I, um, my friend David Ma, he read earlier. I said no, at least he wanted to be sort of set more sectionalized, and I didn't want to. I wanted to be able to weave because yeah. I was learning. You know, I just wanted to be able to kind of weave what I was learning from this. You know, from the um, the boycott. I'm sorry, from the the coaching course and um, the conversation I had with, you know, that mum who had the troubled teen, teen, which sort of starts the book and how that led me to the DY ladies. And so just try to weave that sort of stuff through. So it was a challenge because it, it did mean you jumped a little bit with some of the swimming stories, but Ali was fantastic at helping me do that. Yeah, because I think that certainly the piece that really resonated with me in, in that weaving piece, it built, it built that theory of relevance 
or relativity in the sense that people can, anybody can pick that up and see themselves in, in so many of those circumstances. And so, oh, that's just like, like the teenagers that come up and talk to you after you speak and say, hey, I get that. Yeah. I was going to give up on this, right? So the same type of, there's so many moments throughout Glide where um, people can look at that and go, oh, that's, I can relate to that, you know, so, oh, and being crazy. relatable is half, half, the, half the battle, I think, so. For sure. Okay, so um, now, where can people get a copy of Glide? Do we have? Ah, well, I mean, of course, in these um, COVID-19 times, I would say support your local bookstore. <laughs> if you've got a little <laughs> local bookshop that is open, obviously the bigger ones are open. But yeah, um, otherwise you can, it's at Booktopia, of course. Um, and uh, so, yeah, anybody around the world can order it on Booktopia. So um, that's really nice as well. So. Yeah, we'll drop a, I'll drop a Booktopia link into into our notes okay, so that people can get um, get their hands on a copy of Glide and get inspired oh, and take the oh, panic out of their living and find their yeah. well, <laughs> DIY lady, their own DIY lady inside. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I heard um, John Kabat-Zinn speaking recently to um, to uh, Dan Harris in, on the Ten Percent Happier podcast, and he talked about the fact that um, you know this is an all hands on deck time. And so, uh, like everybody, I've got to miss never enough. Do I know, oh, as we've talked about, do I know enough to, about Buddhism, about mindfulness to write this book? Yeah. And so, you know, so I'm certainly no expert um, in any of this, but it's my hand, you know, it's my, my hand on deck. These yeah. are tough times. Hopefully it's going to help. Perfect. Um, Lisa, thank you. It's been so cool to connect and, uh, <laughs> you know, get you talking about your story, your life, your world. You DY ladies, you're in a DY lady even. <laughs> exactly, she's there. Just by the way, just let me um, have our listeners know you did. Did you save your marriage? Did you, did you save your marriage? Did you uh, yes, yes, I did save my marriage. Yes, I saved my marriage for twenty years on, and and my teenage son is still talking about. It. In fact, he's doing his HSC, and I don't want to say this too loud, but he's reading blind. <laughs> So yes, they're all good. <laughs> also knew the answer to that question, just by the way, that I just wanted our, um, our people to know the answer to that question. Thank you. <laughs> Cyber hugs in these COVID-19 days. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm Deb Han, and this has been Ambassadors, the podcast. I trust you enjoyed this message. For more episodes like this one, subscribe, rate, and share. And to discover your own faith-fueled mission statement, pop on over to the debhan.com site and follow the prompts. I'd so love to hear about your experience. Stay in touch between Ambassador episodes by following me, Deb Han, on Instagram or Facebook. And by the way, that's Han, H-A-N-N, okay? So, sure, come find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if there's someone's story you'd like to hear, drop me a line. I'll do my best. Thank you so much for listening. In the meantime, keep the faith. <laughs>